Turn with me in your Bible to Romans chapter 2. We're teaching on the conscience. I have another PowerPoint tonight. We're going to challenge you a little bit. And I want to do questions and answers tonight if you have any that work or fit on this subject. We're not talking about eschatology, antichrist. What do I think of President Biden or the COVID? Is it the Wuhan flu or whatever? Um, on the subject of the conscience, because I want to make sure you're catching it. I'm trying to teach it half a dozen different ways, because if you can learn how it works, you'll be able to change anything in your life. It won't happen overnight, but you'll certainly be without excuse. If, if one of the things we've said over and over again is your conscience is the voice of your heart. And your conscience has something to say about just about anything, especially in the context of your own culture, because your culture is your culture. You've been given something to think about everything. Now, if we were to take you to Japan or Tibet or maybe Guadalajara or maybe Antarctica, there are a lot of things you'd look at and it would be all question marks because you don't know what it is or what you should think about it or what does it mean. You'd have to learn it. But in our setting, and some of you are not Americans, but you're maybe exchange students or you're maybe on a visa or something, wherever you're from, let's just apply it that way, you pretty much, your conscience has something to say about everything. And that's okay. The question is, is what your conscience saying about it, is it biblical? There are certain things in, the li in our life that the Bible is silent on and God cares nothing about. Like you look at the white wall. It's a white wall. I got nothing else except for, man, that's hard to keep clean. God's neither here nor there in any of that. It's neutral. We just leave it alone. But other things your conscience might have something to say about, and you have to judge it by the Spirit of God. We were in my office before service, and we were talking about the homeless ministry and the homeless population in Cookville and a lot of stuff dealing with homelessness. And one of the men said, you know, I looked at the homeless sign-up sheet, and I just said, I don't like homeless people. And I understand that sentiment. I don't like homeless people. And I said, well, we can't say that. We can't, we, what we've got to be able to say is, I don't appreciate how they live, or I don't appreciate how some of them live. And I said, we can't let that keep us from doing homeless ministry, because even though we can't save all of them, there are people that can be helped. And so I shared the story with them of um, 23 years ago. No, yeah, 23 years ago, I spent a big chunk of a summer in Key West, Florida, serving at an AG church, and we had a police officer that was part of the church, so I got to know a lot about the crime of Key West and about the one percenters and the, uh, the uh, Hell's Angels that would come in on motorcycle rallies and do stuff, but I learned a lot about the homeless population in Key West, Florida in the late 90s, and most of them chose to be homeless because the keys are just nice and temperate year-round. They can live in the ma um, uh, mangroves and not worry about being harassed. They can sleep in the park. A lot of them would get a boat and just put off the shore a little bit and just sleep in a boat and come to shore during the day and just mill about. Most of them had a pension or a retirement, and they needed an address to get that at. And so the church stood in proxy for that, which made me mad. It was part of their social outreach. So a lot of folks, the homeless folks, would come to Glad Tidings, which is Glad Tidings Tabernacle is the name of the AG church there in Key West, still there to this day. And they would let them use the church's address to get their social security or their pension. One guy who came had written some prominent songs in the 70s. He was still collecting royalty checks. All these people were homeless. 
So that was my first exposure to a real homeless population and seeing the dirty ministry side of it and then hearing stories about the homeless lifestyle that some chose to live, which I won't share because it's not worth mentioning. I grew to hate homeless people in the corruption that is stereotypical. So when I came back here to Cookful and was, I was still in college and I was sharing some of my summer experiences with a friend of mine and sharing some of the egregious side of what goes on in mentally ill, drug-addicted homelessness, I made the statement, I don't care if they all go to hell, which is a harsh statement, but I was 21, going on 22. That got back to Pastor Vaughn, and my next meeting with him, he kind of saved that. He kind of loaded that gun in advance, and he knew I'd come and visit him because I was faithful to be trained, and I was always in his office. I made appointments to be, mostly they were appointments to be chewed out, and I knew that going in. I was not expecting that gun of Navarone to be loaded because I did not expect my friend to narc on me to my pastor. And so I went in there, and so he was just chewing me out. It was just like, you know, bang, bang, bang. And then he said, oh, by the way, here's the gun of Navarone. I heard you said you wished homeless people just go to hell. And I thought, so-and-so told you this, didn't they? I'm never talking to him again. He said, you call yourself a minister. You're called to save people, not curse them to hell. You're supposed to have the answer. How dare you judge them in your heart to damnation? They need the gospel, and you claim you have it. Shame on you, son. I, that was, that's a footnote, cleft note of what he did to me, because that was about a 10-minute just, let me load it again here. Look down this hole and say, cheese, and I'm going to hit you again. I said, all right, notice yourself. I love everybody, homeless people included. My conscience did not know what to think of homeless people. After a month in Key West, I had something to say about homeless people. And then my pastor said, wrong. And I quickly adjusted that because that's how quickly you can adjust your conscience if you want it to be. Because remember, your conscience it is the voice of your heart. And your heart is trained by your mind, your will, and your emotions, which I probably won't use this tonight. It's just behind me, but... So if we want to change our conscience, we got to change how we think. we got to change what we want, and we got to change how we use our emotions. And all of that can be done if you want to. you got to get around people that will call you out. The Bible says an open rebuke is better than a secret love. So if you really love your friends, call them out. We are Southerners, which means we are superficial hypocrites, and we call it being polite. The Bible calls it a facade of lies. Because the Bible says, if my brother sin, rebuke him. We ought to be used to rebuking each other, not scalding each other, not beating each other with the verbal frying pan, but saying, hey, what's your attitude? That's a little carnal. That's a little ruthless. That's a little sassy. That's a little harsh, don't you think? And you not get bent out of shape. You, you be able to pause and judge yourself and say, it probably is a little harsh. But we're just so superficial as Southerners. It's, it's one of the worst parts about our Southern culture because it's nothing but a lie of politeness. It's just nothing but a bunch of polies. <laughs> so sometimes we need to be held in, in accountable and be held into check and say, look, don't, don't talk that way. That's not how we're supposed to think about homeless people or white people or black people or teachers or police or what have you. That's not how we think. We have to be open to being corrected. And if you want to, you can change it. If you don't want to, you'll stay the same. But the Bible calls that a seared conscience. If you're, as long as your conscience has not been seared, like 1 Timothy 4 talks about, you can change it. 
You can redeem it. You can have a hard conscience, a callous conscience, but you can redeem that if you'll just quit rubbing it over and over and over again. Our conscience is up for grabs, and the world knows that. That's why propaganda exists. That's why social media has been harnessed by the world powers. That's why for all the pro-gay that Apple is, they're helping to censor gay apps in China right now. Hypocrite much? Whole lot. And you know the president of Apple's a homosexual? He's also an Auburn grad. That might say something about those Auburn Tigers. I got a couple preacher friends that like Auburn. I may need to text them that. How, how much of a money-grubbing fool are you that when you're a homosexual, but you'll help a communist regime persecute homosexuals for the sake of a trillion dollars? Pretty hypocritical the woke movement is, isn't it? That's just the beginning of their hypocrisy. Propaganda it works because most of us don't have a seared conscience. But the other thing we've made observations of here lately is that the whole COVID thing and the world lockdowns have proven just how quickly our conscience can be turned and our souls can be discipled into a new arena. With the whole mask mandate, we've all, our conscience has all been trained now, maybe as Tennesseans we've come out of it, to like, oh, do I need a mask? Am I being judged in here? And, and within less than a year, because of government mandates and government overreach and the fear, our conscience took on a brand new flavor, a brand new conviction. A conviction that didn't exist 18 months ago. A conviction that if I love people, I'll wear a mask. Even though everybody knows scientifically they did nothing about the virus. It's like the emperor has no clothes and we're all just retards playing the game. Amen. COVID's a real thing. But my point is, the whole world has picked up a brand new conscience flavor, a brand new conviction. We should wear a mask. Hey, can, can I come in here? Do I need to put on a mask? Shouldn't we, should we wear a mask? Should we social distance? Now, thankfully, that's wearing off too. But it shows you that our conscience can be changed very quickly. That was discipleship at the federal level. And most of the church submitted to it, but they won't submit to discipleship at the pastoral level. And the thing that is damning to the church, and I mean damning, is that one year of the world's discipleship changed the church faster than 20 years of pastoring. And this is an indictment against us because it means we are still capable of being taught new tricks and being severely convicted of it and wanting to preach it. The whole mass thing became the new gospel for the last year and a half. So much it has divided the church in the Western Hemisphere so that churches that still meet were condemned by churches who refused to meet. And the churches who refused to meet say, we don't meet because we love each other in Jesus' name. And the churches that do meet say, we do meet because we love each other in Jesus' name. And both are convinced. That's a work of the heart. Both are born again. Maybe. There's one side I'm not real sure about, but huh. but we can see how the mind, the will, and the emotions have played into all this. The mind heard the info. It was packaged real convincingly. Just because they have a telecast doesn't mean you can trust them. Just ask TBN. TBN is like the CNN of the gospel. That's pretty good, right? Huh. 
Just because they have slick monikers and, 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 and the chevrons doesn't mean, or scions doesn't, doesn't mean it's the truth. You can type in anything that scrolls across the bottom. Martians landed in Arizona. Oh my goodness, what? It's real. It's happening. <laughs> doesn't mean it's real. And that affected our, our will. Uh, well, what? And our emotions. That's the biggest thing. Fear is the quickest way to make anybody do anything. That's why the Bible commands, the most common command in the whole Bible is fear not. Those of you that deal with fear, hear me very quickly. There is permission to get hit with fear, fall down, and then you better deal with it. Because you, to live in fear is to live in violation of the Scripture. We all have to beat fear in new areas. And God gives us that grace. But you dwell there longer than a day or two, a season, you're in violation of Scripture and you're not walking with God because it's impossible to walk with God and keep living in fear. Yes, sir. I totally get it when you come to a new threshold and you're not sure what to do with it. There's that permission. Just like our children, they grow through stages of fear, but they grow through stages of fear. Fear is something you grow up through. And if you don't, then you're stunted. So fear triggered our emotions, and now all of a sudden, if I, if I don't want to die, I wear a mask. If I love my mama, I wear a mask. If I love my grandmama, I'm going to wear a mask. And all of a sudden, the mind, the will, and the emotions combine to produce a brand new conviction, the conviction of masks, the gospel of masks. And people have fought. We've had people in our nation killed over masks. That's how strong a conviction it has become for some people. Folks have quit churches over masks, whether they enforced them or didn't enforce them. I mean, it's lunacy. We, we won't even fight this hard for Jesus Christ and his gospel, but our nation has played us. The world system has played the church as a bunch of fools. We said that the conscience is the voice of your heart, and the conscience is not the voice of your born-again spirit. If the, the conscience is the voice of your born-again spirit, we'd all have the same conscience. If we all had the same conscience, we'd all have the same convictions, and we don't all have the same convictions. If it's the voice of our born-again spirit, we'd all hold the same convictions, and we don't. Some of us would never steal the tithe. Others of you, it's optional. Some of us would never miss an evangelism. Some of you, going to evangelism is optional. That's a conviction. Some of you, uh, you don't have a problem uh, skipping prayer or not reading your Bible for a month at a time. Others of you, you can't go a day without reading your Bible and prayer. That's a conviction. That's a work of the conscience. Your conscience is what's written upon the table of your heart. Your conscience is what your mind has absorbed, what your will has absorbed, and what your emotions have absorbed. So if you want to change your conscience, guard your heart and add to it what ought to be there. This is also why when we read the Scriptures, God doesn't care how you feel. If it's in the Word, you get it in you. The ultimate walk of, with God is prophesied in the major prophets. It's either Jeremiah or Ezekiel 31, 33. And in that day, I shall write my law upon the tables of their heart, and no man shall teach his neighbor, for I will have written my word upon the tables of their heart. We're not in that day yet. We're still doing that ourselves. We're still being taught, and we're still writing the law of God upon the tables of our heart. That's how we change our conscience. Our, in this church, we've only got about maybe 70 or 80 people here tonight. Every one of us has a different conscience because every one of us has a different amount of the word of God in different areas written on our heart. So we view things differently. We view race differently. We view money differently. We view church attendance differently. We view marriage differently. We, do, we view parenting differently. 
And the thing is, it doesn't matter whether it's personal opinion or scripture, we can pick or choose it. And we are the result of what we allow to be written on the table of our heart. Romans 2 has been one of our theme verses, verse 15. The Gentiles show the work of the law written in their hearts. So when you write something on your heart, it does a work. What's the work? It's reflected in their conscience, also bearing witness. And their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. So whatever you write, this is Romans chapter 2, verse 15. Whatever you write upon the table of your heart is going to feed your thoughts, and they'll either condemn you or excuse you. Uh, our convictions, here's something we'll say over and over again tonight. Your convictions are learned. Your convictions are learned. The voice of your heart has been taught to you. When you parent, you automatically begin to instill in your children your convictions. My children have experienced tongues. Tongues is a real thing to them. We pray in tongues every time we ride into church together. If, if me and the girls are riding somewhere further, I'll say, let's pray, and let's pray in tongues for the next three red lights, and they'll pray in tongues. That's real to them. That's their conviction because I've taught them that. They want to know why people in our family don't pray in tongues. They want to know what's wrong with them. Don't they love God like we do? That's a good question. Why don't you ask them next time we see them? Out of the mouth of babes. My children have convictions because we have taught them to them. Children that, that lack or have different convictions have different convictions because they have different parents. It's fun when we watch movies together as a family. There's, there's a movie right now the kids like. It's a Jackie Chan movie called is it The Spy Next Door. Spy Next Door, kind of one of these kid movies where you have like the action guy with the, you know, the kids. And so it's a good family movie and they like the kung fu and it's Jackie Chan and it's fun. And the kids are super sassy. And so when our girls watch it, they go, mmm, mmm, can't talk like that way to mom and dad. Watching that movie violates their conscience. Because that on television is not acceptable. They know what happens if you try to do that in real life. And sometimes we'll pause it. I'll pause it and say, what would happen if you talk to mommy or daddy that way? They, we go stand by the paddle. <laughs> That's a heart I've programmed and mother has programmed. And it keeps working for them. Same like yes, sir, and no, sir. My kids are better at saying yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am than some of you guys. Now, it has taken 20,000 investments to get one or two unsolicited yes, ma'ams, and no, ma'ams, but that will carry them the rest of their life because that politeness and that courtesy will open doors. Faith can't. Amen. That's a conviction I have. My parents put it in me that people are not your equal. Treat them with respect. They'll respect you. In my life, everybody's a yes, sir, or a no, ma'am. 16-year-old with her face pierced up and pink hair at Walmart, that's a yes, ma'am. Even for all her trauma and damage, that's a yes, ma'am. If I say yes, ma'am, she'll treat me better. I don't do it to her so she'll treat me better. It's not manipulation. It's because she deserves some respect. I don't know why you don't teach your kids that same thing. You don't have the conviction I do. But you have been under my pastorate almost 14 years now. Your conscience is the voice of your heart. Those convictions you have, you learn from somebody. TV. We've made the point that Instagram and social media has changed our convictions in less than a decade. 
That's why I've harped and preached against it. Some of you parents trusted me very quickly. We preserve your children from a lot of the smut. Some of you drug your feet, and it cost you. Your kids lost their innocence and their purity when they didn't have to because you didn't think your pastor knew what he was talking about. Joke's on you now. What I'm teaching tonight, what I've been teaching the last couple weeks, I would say if there's anything I'm a master at, by the grace of God, it's this subject because I have worked at it for 20-plus years. I know how the heart works. I know how to manipulate this whole church through the gospel or through corruption. I'll show you Paul. He did it the same way. I have learned how the preaching of the Word of God changes you. I've learned how to get you into a position to hear the Word of God and be changed. So when social media came along 10 years ago and I saw it do the same thing in a matter of three posts, things that pastors take 10 years to do, I thought, this is from the pit of hell and God's people are stupid. Some of you still let your little teeny boppers have smartphones and and Instagram accounts and they shot little pictures of their bosoms and their parts to little boys and little girls. And yeah, shame's on you because you didn't trust your pastor. Wasn't trying to control you. He was trying to keep some innocence alive. Amen. All right. Your convictions are learned. So you have to be able to stop and evaluate what are my convictions? Where did they come from? And then judge them in line with the Word of God. Everything we have comes back to the Word of God. It must all be judged. I actually, here in my, I think my pulpit, I have my baton rouge. Yes. Can I have the French interpretation, Hannah? That's right. Not just because she's fluent in French. It's a literally a red stick. So this is the baton rouge. This is what they use on McEnany Island in Louisiana where um, Tabasco is grown because they grow Tabasco peppers there. And the red baton or the baton rouge, this is what the pickers use. There's a Peter Piper joke in here. It's what the pickers use. Actually, it's a much smaller version, but the real version you can't see very well. It's painted the exact color that the pepper needs to be to pick it. So if you're colorblind, you just have to match the shade of gray in your hand. And they just they do it like this. I've been there. I've been in the tour. I've toured the Tabasco plant. It's on a salt dome in the marshes of Louisiana. This is the Word of God. And you take the Word of God to every conviction you have, and you say, if it isn't the same color, it can go to hell. I don't care if Grandma taught it to me. It goes to hell. If it isn't the same color as the Bible, I don't pick it. Or I pick it and I burn it. This is our standard, the Word of God. You don't, well, this, that's not how I was raised. Change, Pastor Vaughn would have said, change your raising. Well, that's not how we believed at my church. Was it in the Bible? Well, you know, no, shut up. It wasn't in the Bible. Get in the Bible. This is your problem. You have to be willing to compare everything to the red baton of the Word of God. And you can change your conscience. You can change your convictions. You can change your heart. We're witnessing that right now with social media, with the woke movement, the LGBTQAIP2S thing, everybody's conscience is shifting towards the abyss. Little increment at a time. Right now, I've said it for years for you, those of you that have been here a while, it's middle school peer pressure. If you don't go with them, they shame you till you do. It's middle school playground peer pressure, and folks are denying Christ to be cool. Your convictions are learned, and that means you can learn new ones. 
My wife, one of her testimonies is when she came to the Lord and she got water baptized in college and she started going to Assemblies of God Church. She heard one message on tithing and she said, huh, I need to do that. It instantly became her conviction. She's never stolen from God since that day. But how many other Christians had, did it take them 10 years of sermons on the tithe before they said, maybe I should do this. 10 years of sermons on the tithe. You've been a thief for 10 years. My wife, a 21, 22-year-old, nothing from Indiana, hears one sermon and says, I should do that. That's the difference of hearts. You can change if you want to, or you can be stubborn and obstinate and pick the wrong pepper the rest of your life. And when you pick the wrong colored pepper, you call yellow God's color, you're going to hell. You're out of sorts with God. He ordains one color, red, and everything you pick is red or it's not accepted by God. Pastor Okwoku hammered at me. God does not accept a reduced standard. Why do we? So look at 1 Corinthians 8. Knowledge steers your conscience. Here's, my, here's a little statement. I want to get to our PowerPoint because I think it'll be fun tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7 says, Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge. 1 Corinthians 8, 7. What knowledge? The knowledge that idols are nothing and that the food offered unto them is nothing. That's a mature understanding. If I was somewhere in the third world and I was starving to death and I saw a Hindu temple, a Buddhist temple, or a Muslim temple and there was food left to an altar, I'd eat it. And I'd say, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, for Buddhist meat. Amen. I would prefer not to be in India because I like me some steak, and you know they're not sacrificing a steak to a cow. <laughs> I'd eat it. Bowl of rice, plantains, it don't matter. I'm going to eat it and give thanks. That's mature knowledge. Howbeit, this pastor says, some don't have that knowledge. 1 Corinthians 8, 7. Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge, for some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So notice what this verse says. We have knowledge, therefore our conscience is not weak in this area. They lack knowledge, therefore their conscience is weak in this area. So from that we distill this biblical principle that Knowledge helps feed your conscience. But that's what our model says, is that your conscience becomes the voice of your mind, your will, and your emotions. If you know something, it will change your conscience. A uh, good example from my life, I've shared this story before. In 1999, I was working at Lowe's. In 1996, I was seeking the Holy Ghost hadn't found the Spirit of God to be baptized, and I was jumping all over Putnam County and White County, going to churches, trying to fall into the Holy Ghost. I, I don't know what I was doing. I, I didn't have a pastor, so that was one of my problems. I was a vagabond, just hopping around. And everywhere I was going to Spirit-filled churches, the pastors would be so gracious to sit down with this 19-year-old kid and give me the same messages and the same verses on the Holy Ghost. And I knew them. I could quote them to them, but they were all telling me the same thing. It's the Holy Ghost. It's for you. You can speak in tongues. So one of the churches I went to was down in Sparta. I could still go to it to this day. It's on the same road that LTAP's on in Sparta. I don't know if it's a Spirit-filled church today. I sat down with that pastor. He was an older gentleman. He was a carpenter. He was missing fingers. He helped me get spirit-filled. He didn't pray for me, but he was one of the last guys that gave me the push I needed 
to get spirit-filled. Fast forward three years, I'm graduated college, I've been spirit-filled three years, I'm working at Lowe's, I'm, at, I'm inside Lawn and Garden, but I'm coming out of, ca- um, not cabinetry, but housewares or lawnmowers, not lawnmowers, uh, washing machines. And I'm walking down that, and I see him, and he recognizes me, which is pretty crazy that he recognizes me. And I was so excited to see him because this is a guy, he's one of the pastors in my life that helped get me spirit-filled. And he recognized me. We didn't remember names. And I said, hey. And I I was going to go say, how's it going? And I go, hey, are you still serving Jesus or have you fallen by the wayside? And I went, why is that coming out of my mouth? And he said, oh, no, 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 brother. No, no, we're still serving God. We're still chasing Jesus. And I was like, yeah. And then I felt like such a fool, such an idiot that I walked away like, why would I rebuke a pastor? Why would I say such a dumb thing? And in those years, I was really working hard on my mouth, and it wasn't working apparently. So that's 1999. Anytime from 1999 to 2009, I'd think about that instance, and I would cringe, and my heart would condemn me. How, if I could meet him, I would so apologize for that rudeness. I, how could I say such a dumb thing? And I think about it. Why would you rebuke a pastor? Why are the first words out of your mouth? Hey, sir, good news. I got spirit-filled. I'm going to a spirit-filled church. I love Jesus. Are you still serving Jesus or have you fallen by the waist? Why would that be the first thing? I, I mean, just, it would beat me up. I'd have to put those thoughts down and go, blah, blah, and walk away. 2009, I'm pastoring. have been here two years, three years pastoring. We're going down to Florida for a man trip. And I'm riding with Robert Murdoch in the front seat. And I'm talking about this story. And Robert says, I know the pastor. And it's the pastor that had a church in Robert and Angie's basement. And they were working together. And Robert said, when was that? I said, that would have been May of 1999. He said, no, pastor. He quit. He abandoned us. He left us high and dry, turned the church over to Robert, and just left. And that's when I ran into him. And the first words out of my mouth were, are you still serving Jesus or have you fallen to the wayside? And Robert said, that was the Spirit of God. Dumb old me didn't know it. I just go to open my mouth and... But the knowledge I gained set my conscience free. And I've never felt bad about it since. But for 10 years, my conscience... Because I'm judging it by the knowledge of the Scripture, not by knowing what God knew when this little 22-year-old kid opened his mouth and the Holy Ghost just came out. And you know it had to just... God was going to use it to smite his servant... Because now he's lying to a kid. Don't you know he goes home? I don't even know whatever happened to him. Maybe Robert and Angie do. But that's an example of knowledge adjusting your conscience. That's why sometimes you got to bring things to somebody and say, judge me. I feel really bad about this. How, should I feel bad about this? Or I feel good about this. How, how should I feel? I remember one time in college, one of our friends, Pastor Brett and I, he came back. He lived with me briefly. He came back from Wendy's so excited. He said, praise God. I said, what? He said, I just got a couple sandwiches and I got an extra five bucks back. God is so good to me. And I said, you're a thief. What? I said, that girl miscounted the money. You're giving praise to God. She's going to have to pay that out of her pocket at the end of the night when she has to tally her drawer, and her drawer is five bucks short, and you're praising God, and she's weeping. Go take that money back. That was knowledge adjusting his conscience. (laughs) That one's easy to judge. But I want you to see knowledge steers the conscience. Verse 8, 
He says, meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. But take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to them that are weak. This tells us that if we have knowledge, we ought to bear the infirmities of one another. But I want you to understand that even though Romans 14 says, He that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believes that he can eat all things, and another believes he can only eat herbs. We receive people who have a weakness in their conscience, but we don't condone it and keep it weak. And that's what we need to understand. Just because someone believes they can eat only herbs or someone believes they, that, that they can only worship on the Sabbath, that doesn't mean we receive them and keep them there. If we receive them, we've got to bring them up to speed because God doesn't want anybody to maintain a weak conscience in an area. So part of our job in receiving them that are weak in the faith but not so doubtful disputations is somewhere along the way in our fellowship, we have to say, hey, look, you can drop that. Hey, I, I want you to, let me teach you something. You don't have to wear your hair in a bun to be holy. If you want to, do it. But please know that if I wear my hair down, I'm not unholy. You can wear all that denim if you want to and bedazzle the buttocks out of it. But that doesn't make you holy. You might be in a little bit of pride because I don't know if you can get any more sequins on those cheeks. But just because my wife wears slacks doesn't mean she's unholy. Have you ever been on a mission trip? You ever been outside this nation where your denomination was birthed? Things are a little different. Men wear skirts overseas and it ain't queer. King David wore a skirt. Jesus wore a skirt. Everything. Moses wore a skirt. Everybody wore skirts. Who's to say slacks belong to men and not women? We don't, it's such a cultural thing. But that becomes a voice of the heart. We, we receive those with a weak conscience, but we don't coddle them. If your heart is weak, do we just leave it weak or do we bring strength to it? We bring you along and we bring your faith up through teaching the Word of God. Go to 1 Timothy. I'm going to look at a couple of things, and we're going to look at this PowerPoint. One of the reasons we have rebukes, 1 Timothy chapter 5, one of the reasons we rebuke is to train the conscience. 1 Timothy 5, verse 20, says, Them that sin rebuke before everyone, that others also may fear. So... <laughs> Let's say Brother Steve comes to church wearing a big old feathered red hat like a I'm going to get you sucker 1970s black exploitation baller's hat. And he comes in here with arrogance wearing it. I don't care about ladies wearing hats. I don't think men should. That's my personal southern conviction. It's my house, so I kind of enforce that. I love ladies wearing beautiful hats. You know, there's a difference between a hippie hat and a woman of God wanting to honor the house of God with one of these nice hats. It's biblical. But if Steve-O comes in wearing this big old baller's hat with arrogance, and if I stop preaching and say, Steve, take that stupid hat off. You are mocking God. Everybody in the house goes, we ain't never wearing a hat in this place. <laughs> ain't no subtle disciples. You're like, note to self. He don't like red. Let's wear the green one next week. No. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a harsh or extreme example. But any kind of sin that's open, open sin, we'd have to rebuke. And Paul said specifically so everybody can learn. Just like in a household, when you spank the oldest kid, the other kids are like, all right, we ain't never doing that. I had to get on to one of my children today, very extreme. The other two just sat perfectly still in mama's office. I looked at them, and Bud Bud says, I love you, Daddy. 
Absie doesn't even know to smile. I said, you girls are not, you're not in trouble with me. You're not in trouble. You are in trouble with me. We're not ever doing that again. I love you guys. I love you, but I'm mad at you right now. But I love you. I love us all, but this is not happening again. These other two will never, ever, ever do what happened today the way I dealt with it. Their little heart said, lesson learned. We're not doing that. Didn't you have to teach them from the Bible? Like, I just don't want a whipping like that. That's how this works. That's why rebukes come. If you've ever been in a corporate world or a setting and your boss chews out your coworker, you're like, I ain't never doing that. You make an example. Sometimes you have to have a whipping boy to set the example. This works across the universe. It's what the alpha male does in the animal kingdom. He attacks the strongest male to prove you don't mess with me. And the rest of the pack learns it. That's the alpha male. Nobody bothers to challenge him until he starts hobbling around the pack. Then it's time to take him down. But the reason we rebuke is to teach the conscience. We don't do that here. We, we, and what I love about it, it's a spiritual thing. I don't, haven't had to do it in 10 years or so. I used to have to call people out publicly or call a sin out. I still do that. Call a sin out real specific and just turn on a dime and stomp that thing. And I can feel that this congregation tighten up. And if you're, if you're kind of a t- intuitive, you'll pick up on it too. And what that is, is that's everybody's heart saying the same thing at once. Oh, Lord, have mercy. That brings a reverence. But why did it take a rebuke? Because the heart was callous, loose, and dishonorable. It had to be done publicly. The modern church is spineless. They want to win friends. This is not uh, Carnegie. This is not a Dale Carnegie course. That dude couldn't keep his marriage together. He doesn't know how to win nobody or influence nothing. This is not how to win friends and influence people. This is how to get folks to heaven. And I have authorization, every pastor does, to rebuke. And those that sin, rebuke before others, all, that the others also may fear. So anytime we've had to hit a hard message, it gets real quiet. And that's everybody's hearts going, Lord, is that me? Lord, is that me? Have mercy. Who is that? I wish they'd repent or do something, Lord. It gets real somber. But see, here's how I've learned the hard works. Then I can flip that up, make you laugh, and lighten the atmosphere again. And I can go back and forth, all service, every service, and I can actually move you to where you need to be. It's manipulation for the glory of God. The media does it for your damnation. Somebody is always moving you. Your key is to know the Bible, to know when you're being moved into the scriptures and in line with God's law, or when you're being moved into carnality, or race baiting, or prejudice, or avarice, or carnality. The world is always moving you. The job of the preacher is to preserve you. Some you save with fear. That's manipulation. But so that's what the chiropractor does as well. He manipulates your spine. That's what the orthopedic surgeon does. He manipulates your bones. Manipulation is not a bad word unless the intention is wicked. 1 Corinthians 6, 5, you don't have to turn there. Paul said, I speak this to your shame. What is he doing? He is putting shame into the hearts of the Corinthians because they're suing each other publicly. So why is he having to shame them? Because their conscience isn't ashamed. He also said in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 34, there are some among you that don't even know God. I speak this to your shame. Why is he having to put shame on the Corinthian church? Because their conscience is not ashamed that some of the church members don't even have God. He also said in chapter 14, it's a shame for women to interrupt the service. 
Why is he having to put shame on them? Because their conscience doesn't have shame. He's having to teach them what to be ashamed of. The context is not against women preaching, though it's taught that way. The context is wives interrupting their husbands, asking questions, disrupting the service. It's not about women not ministering, because women, uh, you got all sorts of women in the Bible that ministered. What about Philip's daughters that prophesied? Who do you prophesy to yourself? If he had four daughters that did prophesy, who are they prophesying to? The church. They're speaking publicly. Amen. Miriam took a tambourine, led a worship service. How about Bathsheba wrote scripture? She can write it, but she can't preach it? Somebody sent me a meme where I saw it. I said, here's to those who think it's biblical to learn the gospel from an animated tomato, but not from a daughter of God. That's pretty damning, too. You think it's permissible to learn doctrine from a talking tomato, but you can't from one of God's daughters. Should have told Jesus that before he told Mary, go tell Peter and the others. Go tell the chief apostle and the other apostles. So who's the first apostle? Mary Magdalene. <laughs> I think if she goes and talks to two or three, that's a service. There was 11. Peter and the others. Go tell them I have risen. That sounds like gospel preaching to me. Amen. All right. Offense. Let's talk about offense real quick, and then we're going to go ahead and throw this, uh, this PowerPoint up. Offense, let's give it kind of a new definition there. Offense is a response of the trained conscience. All offense is, is your conscience that's been trained being violated. We're all offended at different stuff, but we're offended at what we've been trained to be offended at. So we ask this question, have you been trained to be offended? Because for 14 years, almost October will be our 14th anniversary here. We've taught you Psalm 119, 165. Great peace, that's the opposite of offense. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing can offend you. So peace is the answer to being offended. Now, there are some things we should find offensive, but that doesn't mean we live in offense. Blasphemy should offend us. Vulgar language should offend us. Carnal behavior should offend us. But that's not what we talk about when we say getting offended. I think we understand that. There are things that should violate our conscience. Even as it says of uh, Lot, it vexed his righteous soul. He was trained to be righteous. Living in Sodom daily vexed his righteous soul. So offense is a response of the trained conscience. Whether it's trained good or trained bad, everybody gets offended at something. Offense is a form of conviction. It is often the result of a violated conviction. So when you've got convictions, we all have them. I'm, these are just my convictions. And somebody violates them, you'll find that offensive. The key is we can't hold everybody to our same standard. We, we can't hold pagans to the same standard as a Christian. We need to hold Christians to the same standard as Christians. You ought to cut your pagan relatives way more slack than you do your believing relatives because they're pagans. I've said pagans going to peg. That's just what they do. Don't get mad at them. But now here's the thing that bugs me. In my family, my extended family, I get more respect as a minister from my pagan relatives than I do my so-called Christian ones. My so-called Christian ones only want me on their side when I can endorse them, but they won't ever, at family reunions, they won't ever ask me, what do I think? What would a pastor say here? What does the Bible say? They don't want that. They want me to go marry their damnable, do their marriages, their, their, their pagan marriages. 
They want me to come and lay my hand on their perversion. You haven't come to me in years. Why would I endorse your marriage? God won't endorse it. We need to cut more slack to the pagans because they're just of their father, the devil. But you'll find they often have more respect for you because you have convictions that are holy than lukewarm, milquetoast Christians will because you put conviction on them. You can, your, your presence convicts them when their conscience doesn't have one. Offense is a form of conviction. When you're offended, it's a conviction. I'm upset about this because I'm convicted of the opposite, and now it's contrary, and that bugs me. But that doesn't mean you stay offended. Hopefully you can see the nuance there. Offense is often the result of a violated conviction, and remember, all convictions are learned. Let, let, me, let me read you this real quick before we get into the PowerPoint. Acts 23. I'm going to show you this really quick. I said I would do this. Acts 23. Paul's on trial. He's gone back to Jerusalem to preach the gospel. Doesn't get to preach the gospel. He, in Acts chapter 23, he's been pulled before the Jewish council. Ananias, the high priest, commands them that stood by to smite him on the mouth. Verse 3, then said Paul unto them, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall. <laughs> Paul's calling names. He's calling them basically, you're a hypocrite. Whited wall is a reference to the Old Testament where they would daub a wall with mortar. There was nothing holding it together. For you sit thou to judge me after the law and commandest me by, to be smitten contrary to the law. So he's quoting scripture. And they stood by and said, revilest thou God's high priest? Then said Paul, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy law. So at least Paul keeps using scripture to check his own convictions. He's not convicted to rebuke this idiot, but when he finds out he's a high priest, he's like, all right, I can't do that. My convictions won't let me slander the high priest now that I know he's a high priest. Isn't it interesting? Knowledge adjusted his conscience. When you're just talking to me, slandering me, I might speak up, but if I find out you're a military veteran or you're a preacher or you're something great, I might change my tune. And I think many times maybe we've been in traffic honking at somebody or wanting to be mad at somebody. You pull up next to them and you think, I like you. Yeah. I, I think I've told you, it bugs me sometimes. I, I get upset at somebody driving miserable and then my heart thinks, well, I wonder if they're a minister of the gospel. If, if they were my hero in the faith, would I be more tolerable of their pathetic driving skills? <laughs> yes. If this was Dr. Barclay I was behind, would I be tolerable? No, I would be trying to keep up with him. See, that's another conscience. Some folks can't speed. Others, 20 plus is acceptable. I had a lady in this church. She was so convicted of driving the speed limit, she wouldn't even do five over, and she stopped at every railroad crossing. Railroad crossings are for jumping. I want to be clear on that. <laughs> They're not for stopping. I ain't driving a bus. I got off-wheel drive. I got Bilstein shocks. We jump those things. She would stop. Her convictions were obey the laws of the land. She chewed me out for speeding. She'd have a problem rebuking me every other service. That's also what Matthew calls swallowing camels, but straining at gnats. You're convicted to strain at a gnat, but you're not convicted to swallow a camel. It's a difference of conscience. Verse 6, but when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he's about to manipulate them because he knows their convictions. He perceives, I've got two groups 
of Jewish council here, and he's a Pharisee himself. He knows their doctrine. When Paul perceives where their hearts are at and where their convictions lie, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. He just got the Pharisees to start liking him. It's very slick. And it's the truth. But he knows what it's going to do to their heart. Of the hope, that is the final resurrection, of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called into question. He just split the council down the middle. And when he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. He's no longer the problem. Their doctrine is. Just like that, knowledge came, their consciences were split. And whereas they thought they had a common enemy, now the enemy is each other. And Paul's totally played them. But everything he said is the truth. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. The Pharisees confess there is a resurrection, and there are angels, and there is a spirit realm. And there arose a great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees' part arose and strove, saying, We find no evil in this man. What, what? Wait, wait, wait. Well, five verses earlier, you're ready to kill him. But because he was able to show you how much you guys had in common, we like this guy. Just like that, they go from wanting to kill him to we like him. There's nothing wrong here. That's how easy people are manipulated. We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let's not fight against God. Other translations read, he might be okay. <laughs> it's crazy. Just, I mean, look, just a few verses earlier, they're ready to beat him and whip him. And he knows how to activate their conscience. He knows what's stronger and more convicting to them than his little Gentile speech. And he activates it. And this Pharisee said, we have no problem with him. And the Sadducees are mad at the Pharisees and everybody. That's how easy it is to be played if you're not grounded in the Word of God. All right? So let's look at this. Hopefully you're learning something about how your conscience, your heart, your mind, your will and emotions work. Because once I move off the conscience, the other thing the voice of the heart is, is your faith. And if you can understand how to listen to your conscience and judge it, you'll be able to amend your own faith and, 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 and isolate it, as it were. Just like if you understand how your legs work, you know how to work them out to develop certain muscle sets. Have you been trained to be offended? We covered this, the American flag. I said last week or two weeks ago, not too much longer, and our nation will begin to train young people that this ought to offend. Remember me saying that? Just like the Confederate flag, just like the swastika, this will become a symbol of hate. And what they're doing is they're training people's conscience. They're, they're playing on their emotions. They're messing with their mind. Well, I came off my news fast yesterday. Come on. College students say American flag symbolizes genocide, extremism, injustice, and sins we've committed against others. June 15th, Blaze Media 2021. It's already here. This was at a college in Texas. So we're watching the propaganda change or begin to change the nation's conscience against its own flag. That our flag no longer symbolizes freedom, laying down your life, marching off to war to save countries from communism, socialism, dictators, 
regimes. It's no longer about our military. It's us shipping off our finest to bleed for folks of a different color. That's what it means to me. It means the best at the Olympics until Latvia beat our dream team in basketball. Right, Gertie? Terrible. Was it Latvia or Lithuania? It was Lithuania. Lithuania beat the dream team. 96, 98, 2000, 2004. We had the very best of the NBA. Not many white guys on that team. And Lithuania. Do you even know where Lithuania is? It's a Baltic state. Lithuania's Olympic basketball team pushed us to bronze, and they got the gold. You ever seen a Lithuanian? Tall, skinny, white guy. Dream team, nothing. It's a nightmare. I still smile at that. that. That dream team, the first dream team was great. Second dream team was so pompous, so arrogant. That's what cost them. Everyone was a showboat and a know-it-all. Lithuanians were like, we just play ball. We're just, glad. We're just happy to be here. The NBA says we deserve to be here. Yeah. They got the bronze, not LeBron's. Bronze, bronze. How'd Bron do this year? Oh, yeah, failed in first round. Is that right? I'm the greatest. He's resting. Did some kid flinch at him? When I see the American flag, I think of this. D-Day. Average life expectancy when those doors drop was like four seconds. They were mowed down to defeat socialism and communism, and we just kept throwing our young at it. That's what the American flag means to me. Or Vietnam, 19-year-old kids going there to help people set free from communism. Buried 55,000 of ours over there, 58,000. That, that, see, well, it's just injustice and genocide. Show me a nation that hasn't committed genocide. Wait, I think of one, Pastor Brett. Rwanda? You mean blacks commit genocide? You mean tribes like the Hutus and the Tutsis? Was that in 1790? 1990? 94. Two million? Million? 700,000? Just wipe them out. Just call it machete season. Just hack them to death because they're a different tribe, even though they're intermarried. You show me a culture that hasn't committed some kind of genocide. Like white people. Like America has the corner market on injustice. That's the cost of going to college today. And I say hashtag defund the universities and the liberal arts. What's that do for you? You have to be trained to know what that is. My kids wouldn't know what that is. You do, because you're educated. That's outlawed in Germany. You can't own that. You can't show that. It's a symbol of extreme hate. It's a swastika. But what, what do you do with that? I don't even know what to make of that. I'm kind of con confused even showing it here. I didn't make that. That was on the Internet. You mean there's gay neo I'm confused. <laughs> Who do I support? Who do I hate? I'm not sure. See, that's where your conscience just goes, question mark? <laughs> Trick question? Are we being watched by the CIA? I mean... Should we mean having that in the church as the Holy Ghost grieved? I haven't grieved God yet. How about if I told you it's a Hindu symbol? 
And the word swastika is Sanskrit. It's a symbol of peace. And it's a symbol of the rising sun. Oh, there it is on a Buddhist statue. I think I had one more. I must have left it out. So it's all about symbolism. And you have to be trained what it represents. Go, you research it. Just do Hindu um, swastika, and you'll see what I'm talking about. They really have, they've been having to defend their, their symbols since World War II. Does this offend anybody? Do you even know what you're looking at? I thought I'd get into pop culture here. This is Tilda Swinton, British actress. She's in a Marvel movie here called Doctor Strange, and she's portraying a figure called the Ancient One. Now, to me, she looks like the natural uh, airbender. <laughs> but she's not playing Avatar, the last airbender, though, boy, she does look like it, doesn't she? <laughs> this is very offensive now. This movie is seven, well, no, no, this movie is five years old, which means pre-production started 2014. So the controversy is... Seven years ago, when they started pre-production on this movie with Doctor Strange, Doctor Strange in the comics is trained by the Ancient One, who's a Tibetan kung fu monk sorcerer. So in the comics, he's portrayed with your stereotypical Asian Sifu teacher look. So that's there. So in order to not appear to be catering to racist stereotypes, Kevin Feige, producer of all the Marvels things, said, let us use an androgynous character. And everybody felt good about that five years ago. Today, we're all offended by it. Now, you're not because you don't even know what I'm talking about. Today, everybody's offended because we have whitewashed Asian culture. But seven years ago, the culture said, you're laughing like, yeah, this is retarded. It is retarded. That's my point. Our conscience is this weak. Our minds are being swayed back and forth. It's a crazy train. It's the crazy uh, pirate ship at the county fair that's held together <laughs> with fewer bolts than workers' teeth. <laughs> That's offensive, by the way, if you want to be offended. <laughs> but I'm making fun of white people, so it's okay. So now he says, I, you know, we should have never. It's the worst mistake I made. He just said that this week or last week. I should have never cast Tilda Swinton because we whitewash Asian culture. Well, seven years ago, the cultural setting said, no, 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 we don't want to cater to Asian stereotypes. So here's the comic book from the 60s, the, you know, the Grandmaster or the Ancient One, and there's Doctor Strange. All right, whatever. This is exhausting. Are you offended? No, because you weren't taught what to be offended at. We don't even know what's going on. Please tell me what are the new rules so I can have an investment in this thing. This is why if you live on social media, you'll stay current with this and totally miss where the Holy Ghost is going. I fast media because all it takes is about a day to jump back in it and go, yep, y'all are still crazy and going to hell and get back out of there and go with God. <laughs> How about this? In the Heights. It's a new musical uh, by Lin-Manuel uh, Miranda. Brilliant guy, Puerto Rican, Mexican out of New York City. Does this picture offend anybody? Because it should. Oh, you're waiting. Okay. Here's my point. Knowledge changes conscience. Does this picture offend anybody? 
in the Heights. That is the Washington Heights. That is a borough of New York City that is traditionally a Latin immigrant hub where folks from all over Latin America, when they immigrate, this is where they go because it's all Spanish speaking. So this is the first screenplay, the first musical Lin-Manuel uh, Lin ever wrote. He's a young guy. He's about 39 or 40. Again, very talented guy, very musically adept, writer, producer, rapper, musician, director, screenplay artist, etc. Very successful guy. This is his newest movie out late last week, and it's offensive. Yeah, you're looking at me like, what? Yeah, see, you guys haven't been discipled yet. Here's, we had to cover her up because that would have been offensive. She's wearing a little skimpy outfit, so my wife added a dress to her, which is why it looks weird. <laughs> Does this picture offend anybody? Because it should. But then again, you have to be taught what to be offended at. Because knowledge affects conscience, and conscience are your convictions. When you look at this, your conscience is like, looks like a Latin street party. The guy on the right's not wearing Captain America shirt. That's the Puerto Rican flag shirt. So we see some Cuban looking, some Puerto Ricans, all Latin, maybe some, some blacks in there, no white people. Are we in America? Are we in Havana? Are we in Colombia? I don't know where we are, but, you know, it looks like a Latin street party. Everybody's smiling. They're having fun. This is why this is offensive, because this is Washington Heights, and this is a traditionally mostly Afro-Latin community, and they didn't have enough black Latins in the movie. All Latin cast, but the Afro-Latins were backup dancers and backup singers. So the Afro-Latin community is calling this, a term I've never heard before, colorist and racist. In fact, I'll read you one quote because I don't make this stuff up. I just I can't stay discipled enough with the world to know what I should be offended at next. Um, black Latin people showed up to the audition, but none of them were good enough to get a leading role. That's what the casting director said. We had all Latins audition. We had lots of black Latins, but none of the black Latins were good enough in their acting ability to get the leading role. That's what a casting director's task is doing. Get me the best talent. No white people are allowed. And I don't have a problem with that. It's a Latin suburb. It's a Latin borough. Yeah, white people would not be appropriate because that wouldn't be historically accurate, right? I'm not offended at that. I get it. Just like there shouldn't be any black people in Schindler's List. That wouldn't be historically accurate. I don't have a problem with that. There shouldn't be white people in Aladdin. There are no white people in Arabia. Don't bother me if there's no whites in that movie. So the excuse that the... Um, the casting director said was black Latin, black Latin people showed up to audition, but none of them were good enough to get a leading role. This person says that is actually probably the worst excuse someone could give for colorism. Again, I didn't know this was a thing. Where, yes, we're diverse, but we don't have enough of the darker color spectrum. So we can't really call it racism. It's colorism. Lynn manuel the writer, director, producer of this, is Puerto Rican-Mexican, so we can't call him a racist. He's a colorist. But you weren't trained to be offended by that because your conscience is like, I got nothing. I thought that was Captain America far right. <laughs> I mean, that's his outfit in the first Avengers movie, right? <laughs> Another person said, the erasure of dark-skinned Afro-Latinos folks in a musical film set in Washington Heights, New York City, a black Dominican neighborhood is colorist and racist. So Lynn manuel the day the movie came out, he apologized 
on Twitter, and he said, basically, forgive me, but it is unfair to put any kind of undue burden of representation on In the Heights. There are so many millions of stories from the cultural specificities of uh, Puerto Rican-American experience, the Dominican-American experience, the Cuban-American experience. We couldn't get all of our arms around all of that. So he kind of had to defend himself. But this is the newest hullabaloo. People are offended at this. You don't know because you're not from Washington Heights. You don't know whether this did a good job or not. Most of the Latin reviews I read said, this made me weep. This was so awesome. I've never seen my people represented so beautifully. The food was what I grew up with. The singing was what I grew up with. It was awesome. But somebody's like, no, I'm offended. There's not enough black Africans or black Latinos. You don't know because you're not from Washington Heights. You don't know what a black Dominican looks like and that they're not represented well enough. They're the only background. Yep, still on the back of the bus or just in the back dancing now. This is nothing to you because you're not trained to think this way. Knowledge adjusts your conscience. So Lin-Manuel Miranda says, I'm sorry, forgive me, I was not historically accurate with my use of color. Says Lin-Manuel Miranda, who wrote Hamilton with an all-black Hispanic cast about Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. Brilliant. I've watched a lot of it. I would say a lot. I've watched probably a third of it. Amazing. Historically accurate. But it's just full of blacks and Hispanics and some Asians on purpose. Doesn't bother me. The hip-hop is amazing. The music is amazing. The fact that you can put that much history in a hip-hop rap battle and be accurate with it is incredible. But there's your cast. So he has to repent to black Latinos for not being historically accurate in Washington Heights, but he owes nobody an apology for Hamilton, which prides itself that the only white guy is King, uh, King George III, King Henry, King George III. The guy in the left, bottom left-hand corner. Because I guess the only people that deserve to be whitewashed are British. Except Lynn Miranda, Emmanuel, Lynn Manuel Miranda is in the new Mary Poppins movie in the Dick Van Dyke role, and he's Puerto Rican. Okay, the Dick Van Dyke role was a cockney chimney sweep. And Lynn Manuel Miranda's role is as a gaslighter with a Cockney accent. Cockney is London working class. You can only be called Cockney if you're born within the sound of the bells of the Cockney Tower and you have a certain accent. So when you watch this movie, we, do we own it? I think we bought it. It's a great movie. It's the best Disney remake ever done because it captures the essence of Mary Poppins. But you have a Puerto Rican playing a Londoner Cockney from the 19th century. And if it was reversed, we'd call that racial appropriation. But never mind what I call wokepocracy. I'm not offended by this because I wasn't taught to be offended by this. I thought he did a fantastic job. I'll ask my friend Chris Parker, whose daddy was a Cockney, how's his accent? We'll judge him on his accent. Because they say Dick Van Dyke's accent was an act of war. It was so horrible. So there's Lynn manuel Miranda, Puerto Rican-Mexican, talented guy, amazingly talented guy. I don't have a problem with a Puerto Rican-American playing a British Cockney if Disney doesn't, so long as he can act and do his job. But how come I'm not conditioned to be offended at this, but other folks are ready to burn a theater to the ground? Knowledge affects your conscience. Your convictions were taught to you. Who has, who has access 
who has access to your ears, who has access to your eyes, who has access to your heart, because whoever does is steering you, and they're using you, and only Jesus Christ has permission. That's why we judge everything by the Word of God. I don't care who plays what role. Are we ever going to have a white Black Panther? Would that be racist? Could we ever have a white actor play Malcolm X, or would that be racist? We're about to get a black Superman. I don't have a problem with that. I wasn't taught to be offended by petty things, and I'm thankful for that in my upbringing. You have to be taught. Your conscience is trained from the time you're born. The good news is it can be retrained. My point with all this is to say, if you don't know what's going on here, you don't know what to be offended at. I, I, I didn't ever put two and two together. This was Lin-Manuel Miranda when I watched the movie. I was like, that guy's got a lot of soot on his face. He's a dark-complected chimney sweeper, gaslighter. I, I don't care about this. There's Lin-Manuel playing Alexander Hamilton. Does a great job in the movie. The whole cast is amazing. I don't care. I don't even know that what a black Latino should look like or the fact that there's not enough of them in leading roles. This is not my problem. That's the problem. I thought I was told white people should shut up. Please tell me these rules. Write them down in a book or something that doesn't change inspired by something. Oh, I already have that, so shut up. I don't need you. I need God. And you would do well to shut off any influence that pulls you away from God and gets you in a fence and wants you to go fight something. Why won't you fight to witness to your neighbor? Why won't you fight an intercessory prayer? Why won't you fight to be at church early? Why won't you fight to be in prayer meetings? But you'll fight over something stupid like movie politics? You are being pimped. Your soul is owned. Amen? And once you know how the whole soul is manipulated, you'll put a guard on it, and you'll be careful who you give it to because you got to give it to somebody. You give it to your wife. You give it to your kids. You give it maybe to your pastor. You give it to those you trust. When you trust somebody, you give them your heart. Do you really trust CNN? Do you trust anything on your phone other than a Bible app? Then why do you believe what you read? What you're reading is affecting your faith. And what, what your heart says, man, that's the Lord is listening to it, and he's going to judge us according to it. Amen? Any questions? That's 835. We covered a lot tonight. That took longer than I thought. Anybody have any questions that I might be able to bring a little bit of clarity to this? I'm trying to teach this from all these different angles. So if I can bring clarity to anything, the Malcolms over here. Yes, ma'am, Miss Cecilian. How can we make sure that um, the word adjusts our conscience and not the other way around? Because, you know, there's a lot of a lot of division happens in the yeah. body when people are like, well, I read this scripture and this is what I got from it. Well, I read this scripture and this is what I got That from is it. an excellent question. So this comes back to the, law, the laws of hermeneutics where you let the Bible interpret itself. Hermeneutics is the laws of interpretation. So in Deuteronomy, we have a law that says, out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every law or every word be established. That's quoted twice in the Torah. It's quoted uh, twice in the Gospels and three times in the Epistles. So the law even obeys itself. And that appears two, two, and three. Old Testament, transitional, and the New Testament, which is really cool. So what that says is we can't build any doctrine on one verse, which is where a lot of charismatics are horrible. We are so bad about taking one verse and building a movement or a denomination or a conference out of it. But what we have to do is, is find, it's called a theological hermeneutic. That the, just means you find every scripture in the Bible on that one subject. 
And then you begin to let the laws of God, the Word of God, interpret itself. There is an uncomfortable hermeneutic that basically asks the question, how do you determine what you do and don't bring over from the Old Testament? Because everybody leaves stuff on the other side of the cross, but we all are using different rules and bringing things over to the New Testament. There's no set answer for that. The, the general answer is we have to know the heart of God. Adultery is still sin, but we don't stone anybody. Homosexuality is still sin, but we don't stone anybody. Bestiality is still a sin. We don't stone people for that. We have compassion on them. We know now we cast the devil out of them for bestiality and homosexuality if they want deliverance. So the short answer is, and this is getting to be longer, you, you have to find more than one verse and you build this pattern. You build almost like a fence perimeter of what it is. If you have two points, you have a line. If you have three points, you begin to build a pyramid. If you have a fourth point, now we have a geodesic shape. And the more points you have, the more beautiful a doctrine you can develop. So the, that's an excellent question. And so when you have that, now you can more accurately judge your conscience. And there's another concept I talk about in our little book, Building Sound Doctrine. There are what's called antitheses in the scriptures, where Paul says in Corinthians, I speak this to your shame. But he also says in the previous chapter, I don't want you to be ashamed. Wait, so which is it? Yes, both. He speaks things to our shame when we're not ashamed. But when we are ashamed and we shouldn't be, he doesn't want us to be ashamed. I had somebody, actually, this happens a lot. People call me, they've gotten to some heinous sin. They confess it to me, and I say, All right, yeah, I forgive you. Let's pray. And then I recently had somebody call me back a couple days later and say, Hey, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Why didn't you rebuke me? I said, For what? Well, for my sin. I said, You're the one that called me. You already knew it was a sin. You're already brokenhearted. You're confessing it to me. What's there to rebuke? You're already ashamed. I could hear your voice quivering. You're terrified to be calling me. There's nothing to rebuke here. But if somebody's out there doing something sinful, you just say, what are you thinking? Don't be a fool. This is going to kill you. So you're handling it. It's still the heart of God, but it's, a, it's adjusting based on the conditions present. So the more scripture you know on a subject, that's why I really endorse topical studies because a topical study is a theological hermeneutic and that gets convoluted. But topical just means you study a subject till you know all the scriptures on that one topic. And then you almost become a master for the time being on that one subject. And then you would judge your conscience by that. Because there's a time to be angry, and then there's a time to not be angry. There's things to rejoice over and things you never rejoice over. But joy is neither here nor there. It's how we use it that gets to be a problem. Does that answer it? Did you have a question, Ronaldo? Were you just raising your hand for her? Okay. Yes, sir. Uh, yes, sir. So um, I often uh, think about like what things in the body are secondhand issues versus firsthand issues. Yeah, yep. uh, I, I find that a lot of times, like as believers, we have situations where our convictions are stronger in one area. Then you have another group of Christians where their convictions are elsewhere. Right. Um, I heard a theologian who said uh, he was teaching about like how to value all perspectives. And so he used the um, example that uh, Moses was convicted to leave the temple or leave the uh, Egyptian palace. Meanwhile, uh, Joseph was able to do great work within the Egyptian palace. So I guess my question is, um, how do we effectively balance differing perspectives of convictions without enforcing our own as law? It's gonna come back to bringing it, number one, what does the word say? If the word says, uh, you know, we could, with Joseph and Moses, I, I understand, I appreciate the, the perspective, but we got 430 years difference between the two of them. 
One was called to bring in, the other was called to lay out. So you got totally different callings. Um, and I totally understand the whole uh, perspective issue that we're dealing with, whether we're dealing with inner city blacks versus African blacks, Latinos in Puerto Rico versus Latinos in Guatemala versus whites in America or whites in Europe. We've all got a different perspective on what we're dealing with. The question always has to arise, what does God's word say to us in this situation? And also know uh, that we've got to draw closer to God and not just find the scriptures, but also find the heart of God in the scriptures. What is God saying today? What is God saying to the church universal? That by that, I just mean the church around the world. Is he preparing us for his homecoming or us coming home? Is he preparing us to have a revival? And we can't be distracted. Like you said, secondary issues get so many people off course, whether it's MAGA rallies and Trump and that Trump's going to save us or whether it's uh, you know, inner city violence. The thing about perspective is it's more real. If you're in it, it's the most real thing to you. What is the Spirit of God saying to you in that thing? And at what point do you get the victory over it? That's the real issue. If it's an issue, we're looking for victory. And victory should come, and then we go back to the bigger picture, which is the kingdom. So it's easy for any color, any class, any society, any group, any subsection to make a gospel out of their issue. And then, then to be honest, there's always money to be had in the secondary issues. There's books to be published, conferences to be held. And sometimes you can't even let those things die out because then your money dries up. They, in, in marketing, they call it the burning platform. You get people fired up. You, you find out that thing that resonates in them, and you got to know your crowd and know your base and play to it. And we can't ever let that die because if it dies out, we lose our money. Okay, we got issues. Let's deal with it and bring the kingdom. But if we're not careful, our secondary issues become idols. And that may be the better answer. At what point, at what point has the issue become the idol? And if that's the case, God's not even helping it anymore. He's ignoring it. So everybody has an idol we have to be careful of. And so, you know, I don't preach this way in Africa because they don't have the same issues there. I don't preach this way in Europe. They don't have the same issues there. When I, I just preach to Albania, don't have these issues there. I deal with something totally different. Every, every culture has an idol that they think is the burning platform. And the Lord's just going to say, what is that to you? Follow thou me. Ezekiel 14 says, son of man, these men have set up idols in their heart. Why should I talk to them? So really it comes back to we got to judge ourselves and see have we erected a new God on our throne. And so that's an excellent question. Where's the idol? Where's the real issue? What's the word of God say? And let's move on to soul winning. Amen. That's an excellent question. I hopefully I, clear, I, hopefully I did. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. This question I asked you after church last week. Bring her up a little bit so I can hear her here. Okay is identifying the Holy Spirit, the voice of the Holy Spirit above uh, the mind, the will, the emotions, the conscience, the convictions, you know, being yeah. able to judge between the voice of God in trumping all of that, getting to a place to where you listen more to the Holy Ghost, not all the other stuff that you were raised in. Well, there, Dr. Barclay has an awesome teaching called Seven Ways to Check Your Leadings. <laughs> Are you reading the book? Okay, so that's the easy answer right there. Just read that book and do it because I can't, I can't improve it. Um, but the other thing for us as charismatics is when we come into charismatica, we hear this notion that people hear from God and we want to. And so what we often do, I was guilty of it, is uh, we, we try so hard to hear from God, we almost get a hernia. 
We're just like, mm, mm, was that God? Was that God? And before long, it's almost like, like when I go caving and we sit perfectly silent, you can hear voices. And it's your head messing with you, or it's water trickling a quarter mile down the passage. You can imagine conversations. I've done it many times, and I just have to say, there's nobody there because there's nobody coming, and Jim's right here beside me. But your head starts to play those games with you. We do the same thing in prayer. So what I've learned pastoring and what I've learned as a Christian serving God is I don't try to hear from God. I just serve him, and he knows how to get a hold of me. Now, there are times when I say, Lord, I need to hear from you. You've got to speak to me. And I just put that out there. Lord, you've got to speak to me. I need wisdom for my wife. Or I need wisdom for this mission trip. I need wisdom for the Abundant Grace Church. Lord, give me direction. I thank you for it. Lord, you're so good to me. And I go about my business, and he's never failed to speak to me. And I love it when he interrupts me because I'm not looking for it. And I'll be cutting my grass, or I'll be playing with the kids, and all of a sudden I just know what to do. There it is. Praise God. Because it sure is better getting off on some mountaintop looking for like some charismatic guru or 1-800-MADAM-CLEO going, mm, uh, I think I heard from God. People who talk that way are crazy, and they probably have a familiar spirit. People who always hear from God, they probably have a familiar spirit. Because I serve God, I might humbly say kind of successfully, he doesn't talk to me that much. He doesn't have to talk to me that much. I'm not that needy. And I'm doing the last 20 things he told me to do. So, James 1 says, if any man like wisdom, let him ask of the Father. The Bible says that the Bible is the spirit of wisdom. So I pray, God, give me wisdom. And then I start studying the Bible. And sometimes it's just the spirit of seeing and knowing. You just know. You just know what you need to do. So, But when you do hear from God, because we're all for visions, we're all for dreams, we're all for trances, we're all for the word of knowledge, the word of wisdom, the word of the Lord, a prophecy, I'm all for it. But then that's when you've got to check it. Because the, the, the demon realm knows we're charismatics and we believe in voices. And thir- 1 Corinthians 14 warns us that there are many voices and they are all significant. So we don't chase voices. You'll hear me, you'll see me hear from God the most in a service. That's it. Because I have to. Because these are where the gifts of the Spirit manifest and I've got to steer a service. So I'll say, let's see, let me see if there's anything the Lord wants to do. And then usually it's just a knowing. I just heard the Lord say this. I'll say that, but really I just know. Or we need to turn to this verse. Or one more thought. So that's, that's kind of, I don't try to hear from God. I really don't. I don't try to hear from God at all. I pray for peace, number one. Lord, thank you for letting me know what you, what you, let me know what you want me to do. And 99 times out of 100, it's just peace or no peace. Most of these charismatics who claim to hear from God don't. They hear from a demon or their own head. And it's evident in the fruit they have in their life. We had a guy here uh, Sunday night, came here last Sunday night, crazier than a bag of cats. He's called of God to visit churches and release prayers over them. So last week, Dr. Cephas headed them off for me. I was like, yeah, I'm not fooling with that. Sunday night, he made a beeline straight for me as soon as service was over. I'm like, oh, here we go. He had a word for my guest minister. I said, no, you don't. I have the gift of prophecy. I'm like, did you not hear what the guest minister just said about people with, with gifts of prophecy? You don't have it. He said, I have the gift of prophecy. I said, no, you don't. I said, you're crazy is what you are. Your mind's not stable. Where do you go to church? I go to two churches. Let me give you a word from the Lord, sir. Don't even introduce me, yourself to me. Just come start trying to prophesy on me. You need one church, one pastor. Your brain is squirrely. You're all over the place here. You're not making any sense. And you think I'm going to let you prophesy over me? 
Well, I had a word from the Lord, but the Lord told me to hold it. I said, good, because it wasn't God. Well, it was about a rabbit, and it's just interesting. He talked about hunting dogs. I said, no, no, it's not interesting. You're crazy. I told him that several times. Your brain is not stable. You need a church. And God did not send you here to my church to prophesy to me. Well, I came here last week with righteous indignation. And I said, over what? He said, well, I, was, I had to hold my peace. I said, you're not prophesying over me. He just would not relent. I finally said, all right, give me your two cents worth. Let's hear it. He said, because you've rejected the anointing, there's no power in this place. You must repent. I said, you're done. Go away and don't ever come back. Rick, get him out of here. So now we've already marked him. He's not welcome next week. You don't come into a church and rebuke anybody. On top of that, you can't shave. You can't tuck your shirt in. Your breath smells like rear end, and you're just a scruffy dump, and you're sent here on assignment by God to rebuke a pastor and a guest minister? You're crazy. He's charismatic, though. I want to say I know both your pastors you just mentioned. Shall I call them right now? Because they don't know you. I know them, and they don't know you. This is, this is when people want to hear voices. We don't chase voices. We chase God. If you want a voice, you can have one, and you'll end up in church. You've rejected the anointing. Oh, Lord God, did you not listen to the anointing during worship? Did you not see the anointing on the guest minister? Did you not see what God was doing? I know the crazy church he was raised in. They smoke cigarettes in between their worship sets. We have a church like that in town. In between, in between songs, the singers have to go outside. <laughs> Let's get another one. That's the church he was raised in. Crazy. We don't want voices. Repeat after me. We don't want voices. We want the Bible. It's that simple. Amen. I will, that will keep you safe. We have a more sure word of prophecy. We're all for prophecy, but even Peter said, I heard God Almighty speak from heaven about his son Jesus, and I have a more sure word Amen. that I would do well if I take heed to. So he's even willing to discount God Almighty speaking from the heavens. The Father, he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Bible's what I trust more than that Mount of Transfiguration. I was there. I saw it. I'm still not sure about it. I have a more sure word. <laughs> this is where charismatics fail God. They leave this. This is all we need. We don't just believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. We believe in the sufficiency. Where charismatics get judged by Reformed guys and Baptists is that we don't think this is sufficient, so we start our own revelations. We believe in the inerrancy. That means this is flawless and this is all sufficient. If we never have another vision or trance or prophecy or word, I don't need it. I don't need it. In fact, I was going through my prophecy journal today showing somebody. I hadn't had a prophecy in a couple years, and I don't care. Because thank God for him, but we're doing the last thing he told us to do. Amen.